Hello and welcome to Teeing Off on this Wednesday, May 31st. I'm RJ McCullough. It's Memorial Week, but first, we had a good finish at Colonial last weekend. Kevin Kistner brushed in a five-foot putt for par to shoot a final round 66 to claim his second win on the PJ Tour in the final round of the Dean and DeLuca Invitational. Not too long ago, the focus on Kevin Kistner was on his second place finishes. He had three in the 2014-15 season, all in playoffs. Then he had another one that November at the WGC HSBC Champions in the early portion of the 2015-16 season. Just two weeks later, though, he broke through with his first PGA Tour win at the RSM Classic. But that wasn't the end of it. This March, he tied for second at the Arnold Palmer Invitational. Then last month, he and teammate Scott Brown lost a playoff in the Zurich Classic team event. Back to this Sunday at Colonial, and Kistner was back in familiar territory, having grabbed a share of the lead with three consecutive birdies to start his back nine, and with Jordan Spieth watching from atop a chair, Kisner produced a clutch up-and-down par at the 18th for his second win on tour, avoiding a potential four-man playoff that would have included defending champ Spieth and John Rahm. After the win, Kisner called Colonial a top-five course for him, telling the crowd at the trophy ceremony that when the tour schedule comes out each year, Colonial Week is, quote, highlighted, circled, and doubled over. After a missed cut in 2014, he tied for fifth here in 2015, and then tied for 10th last year, so it makes sense that he's comfortable there. Third round leader Webb Simpson shot a final round 71, making 11 straight pars after birdie at the par 4 sixth hole. He finished solo fifth. Sean O'Hare birdied the final hole to move into a tie for second with a 4 under 66. He, of course, shared second with Rahm and Spieth. Despite the runner-up finish, Jordan Spieth will take many positives out of the week, particularly in his ability to rally from a sluggish start. After his first 23 holes, Jordan was 3 over for the tournament and staring at a third consecutive missed cut. He rallied in his second round Friday, at one point making 4 birdies in a 5-hole stretch. In his last 49 holes at Colonial, he made 15 birdies to just 3 bogeys. If he had just played par golf in that opening stretch, Spieth would have won by 2 shots. He will now cap a run of 4 straight starts, this week at the Memorial. Fellow runner-up John Rahm may be one of the game's biggest hitters, but he proved last week he can contend on a tight shotmaker's course as well. Rahm shot a 4-under 66 on Sunday to finish in a tie for second in his first ever start at Colonial. Actually, he came to the 18th green with a birdie putt of 10 feet that would have forced a playoff, but he ran it by the left side. Rahm did move into the top 10 in the world rankings with his runner-up finish though, at 22, he is the fifth youngest to ever reach the top 10. Those before him, Sergio Garcia, Rory McIlroy, Jordan Spieth, and, of course, Tiger Woods. Pretty good list of names to be involved with. Over on the Champions Tour, Bernhard Longer edged out Vijay Singh on the weekend and won his record ninth major on the senior circuit, his second in his many weeks. And as impressive as that is, there was some irony in the victory. After the round, Bernard and a number of other guys walked by Eric and Donald Trump Jr. as they made their way to a temporary scoring tent beside the 18th green. Of course, the shining shield of Trump golf hanging above them. And if that weren't enough Trump for Bernard, Eric also posed with Longer during the trophy ceremony Sunday evening. Of course, with the event being held at a Trump course, there were bound to be some sightings, but things with the Trumps and Longers have a bit of a past. We all remember the voter fraud allegations Trump boasted on about but the ties to Bernard Longer and a voting booth situation got way out of control and put a ton of attention on Longer for something that, well, 
never happened. So one can't help but wonder how Longer feels now about Trump and his family. May have been some awkward handshakes. Alas, congrats on the record, although Gary Player seems to think he is still tied with Longer at 9. If you include his titles from attorneys that were later turned into majors, he actually makes a pretty good point. And what kind of tour has majors on back-to-back -back weeks? Anyways, weird. Oh, and if somehow you're wondering, what would Barack Obama think of all this? Well, he was out golfing at St. Andrews last week, so he likely missed it. And if you're now wondering, why on earth would anyone wonder what Barack Obama was thinking? Well, I just wanted to throw in that he played St. Andrews last week. I wonder what he shot. PGA pro Jeff Overton, who has played just twice since last July, is the latest to have his injury story surface on Twitter. On Overton's 34th birthday on Sunday, his wife Christina took to Twitter to explain what's been going on with her husband and why he hasn't been seen inside the ropes in a while. It turns, it turns out that Overton recently had seemingly routine surgery for a herniated disc, only to wind up getting a life-threatening infection in his spine that required an emergency operation. Quote, after taking several months off of competitive golf due to a herniated disc, Jeff underwent a minimally invasive procedure in hopes of improving the area, Christina wrote. Through the procedure, he acquired a life-threatening infection in his spine, forcing him to have an emergency surgery, end quote. According to Christina, the couple is, quote, finally seeing the light at the end of the tunnel, as Overton continues to recover. While he has not won on the PGA Tour, Jeff has accrued more than $12.7 million in career earnings and represented the U.S. at the 2010 Ryder Cup. Last season was the first since 2007 in which Overton failed to advance to at least the first stage of the FedEx Cup playoffs. Best of luck to Jeff in his recovery. Speaking of Twitter, one of the most notorious tweeters on tour, Grayson Murray, has ended his self-imposed Twitter suspension and is now back on the interwebs. Let's take a quick peek to see if he's done anything controversial yet. Da, da, da. Tweeting about Muirfield, says he still loves Tiger, and any pro golfer talking bad about Tiger should get their amateur status back. I actually agree with him on that one. So okay, not, not yet. But we all know it's just a matter of time. Over on the European Tour, many casual American golf fans may have missed Alex Noren's rapid ascension through the World Golf Rankings thanks to four late-season wins last year. But Sunday at the BMW PGA Championship, those watching got a good glimpse of just what makes Noren one of the top players in the world. Starting the final round seven shots off the lead, Noren egoed the 18th hole to shoot a course record 62 and win the European Tour's flagship event by two shots. It was his ninth career European Tour victory and his fifth since winning the Scottish Open in July. Also from across the pond this weekend, a Brandon Grace victory at Wentworth may not have sat well in the locker room given the South African's liberal interpretation of the rulebook during his opening round. Grace avoided a plug lie in the sand because his feet reached the bunker lining upon digging in, entitling him to a free drop. Staring a likely double bogey in the face, Grace made just bogey and ultimately moved to within a shot of the lead after 54 holes. Of course, he wasn't able to close out the event, but if he had, as I mentioned, probably wouldn't have gone over too well in the locker room. On one hand, the rulebook so rarely benefits the player that Grace could be commended for knowing his options, but on the other hand, the move did not set well with, among others, Paul McGinley, who raised the point that if players simply dig deep enough, they might be able to get out of a variety of poor lies. It also didn't help Grace's cause that the incident came on the same day when fellow South African Ernie Els was commended for calling a two-stroke penalty on himself. And a perfect segue back to the PGA Tour.
According to European Tour Chief Executive Keith Pelly, it looks like the move of the PGA Championship to May is all but a done deal. Pelly spoke during Golf Channel's second round coverage at Wentworth and candidly theorized about his options for moving the BMW PGA should the PGA of America move its marquee event. Saying, if in fact the PGA Championship is moved to May, which I anticipate that it will, we will have to look where is the best fit for the BMW PGA Championship. But obviously, we would do everything around the majors. Pelly also added earlier in the week that he expects a decision on future PGA dates to be made by the end of August. At this point, the surprise would be if the season's final major remained in its current slot. Now, if this were to transpire, the schedule would actually flow pretty nicely. The Masters, of course, is in April, which would be followed by the PGA in May, the US Open in June, and the Open Championship in July. The Tour could also then look at moving the Players' Championship to March, giving them a marquee event in every month from March through to July, and then allow a more definitive playoff series with more of a gap after the majors are done, lending itself to more of a ramping up period and placing bigger attention on the FedEx Cup playoffs, something the Tour also may want to move due to its scheduling due to its scheduling conflict with football. Making the jump from the windy and flat courses of Texas the past few weeks, the tour lands at Muirfield Village in Dublin, Ohio, and a decidedly different sort of venue with plenty of elevation change for the players to contend with for the memorial. Muirfield Village is the creation of Jack Nicholas, a 7,392-yard par 72 that winds through what is part of a forest that Nicholas himself used to hunt in when he was just a wee boy. While wooded and tree-lined, Muirfield has wider fairways than you might think, and the fairways are hit more than not around there. Missing them can take you out of a hole completely. Now in its fourth decade as Memorial host, Jack's Place is also the only locale to host all three of U.S. Pro Golf's team match play showcases. The Ryder Cup in 1987, the Solheim Cup in 1998, and a President's Cup in 2013. With constant fine-tuning by Nicholas and his design team, Muirfield Village consistently has ranked among America's top 20 courses and the world's top 50. FedEx Cup leader Dustin Johnson and world number three Jason Day, who makes Columbus his adopted hometown, highlight a lineup that features seven of the top 10 in the world rankings and 18 of the top 30. Numbers two Rory McIlroy had committed but withdrew after a flare-up of the rib injury that had sidelined him earlier this year. John Rahm, winner of the Nicholas Award just a year ago as a top golfer in NCAA Division I, now tees it up as number 9 in the world golf rankings. Last year, William McGirt made his first PGA Tour victory one to remember, going bogey-free for his final 22 holes at Muirfield Village to outlast John Caron on the second hole of a playoff. The South Carolina pro saved par from a bunker at number 17, two-putted from 65 feet to get into the playoff, then he used the slope behind the hole to get up and down from a deep bunker on the first playoff hole and played a superb flop shot on the second replay to par again. Karan's approach on the second extra hole flew into the gallery above the hole and his pitch ran well past the flagstick for a decisive bogey. McGirt's first victory came in his 165th career PGA Tour start. Dustin Johnson, who missed last year's playoff by just a stroke, hopes Muirfield Village will restore the edge that led to three straight wins before a slip and fall accident that of course forced him out of the Masters. His past two starts have been 12th at the Players and 13th at the AT&T Byron Nelson. Jason Day seeks again to win his first in front of friends and wife Ellie's family, or at least his first top 25 at Muirfield Village. Last year's share of 27th matched his best at Jack's Place, though he does arrive off a playoff loss at the AT&T Byron Nelson. 
Russell Knox and Peter Uline are among nine players coming to Muirfield Village following last week's BMW PGA Championship at Wentworth. Six of the Memorial's past 13 champions have been international players. Before that, just three of the first 27 came from outside the U.S. And just one man has ever won back-to-back Memorial titles, Tiger Woods, claiming three straight from 1999 to 2001. The tournament's winner for the past two years has finished 15 under par, and nobody over par has made the cut the past three years. As for how the course will play, the one way we know that Merrifield Village plays is downhill. Nicholas says that his days working with Pete Dye taught him that golf is better played and more enjoyable downhill. To that end, Jack built Muirfield with that very sentiment in mind. Jack presents players with inviting downhill looks to some generously wide fairways, allowing for a high rate of fairways, which is imperative because the greens are so undulating and demand precision to small spots depending on the pin placements. Out of position around Muirfield is generally just 5 to 10 yards off the fairway with all the creeks, lakes, and trees that are very much in play throughout. Since Muirfield is a par 72, it should come as no surprise that the par 5s are crucial to scoring. Two of the four par 5s are very reachable this week at 5 and 15, and the other two at 7 and 11 are reachable only by the longest of hitters. Regardless, the par 5s this week are very important, as are the par 3s. All the par 3s averaged over par here last year. The toughest of the bunch is the 16th, which averaged a bogey for almost 30% of the field last year. Another scoring observation about Muirfield is the overall scoring setup. The front nine is significantly easier than the back nine is. Due to this, getting off to a hot start is imperative to overall success as players are almost assured of bleeding strokes back to the field on the incoming nine. Generally, at Muirfield, if you miss the fairway, you're looking at bogey. If you hit the fairway but miss the green, you're likely looking at bogey. Even if you hit the green but miss your spot, you could be looking at bogey. Basically, you have to play all around great golf on each and every shot and stay focused between the shots. Jack makes sure to reward good shots and duly punish poor ones. The other thing Jack did really well is create brilliant amphitheater-like environments around each green. Every green, it seems, is surrounded by a raised grouping of hills for the spectators. While this makes for incredible golf watching, it really makes playing golf very difficult. This is why missing a green at Muirfield can be so costly. Nearly every chip is an awkward lie, frequently downhill, to a green that is two to four yards below you and often running away. Oh yeah, and you're in five inch deep rough. We're gonna see plenty of guys flapping shots and sliding under chips with rough this week. And of course, I would be remiss to discuss the memorial without talking about the weather. This event always seems to bring some rain to the Columbus, Ohio area, and this year is no different. Thursday will unquestionably be the best day of golf all week. Cool temperatures for the morning guys with a high only reaching 70 degrees. Gusts never exceed 10 miles per hour at any point during the day. Basically, ideal golf conditions. Guys will need to make the most of the pristine conditions for the lone day they will have them. Friday starts okay, very similar to Thursday with calm winds and cool temperatures. The wind gradually increases on up to 13 miles per hour, steady winds and gusts up to 18 miles per hour for the afternoon group, picking up just in time for a front to start creeping through and dropping some rain on the late afternoon Friday groups. Keep an eye on this front, and if it looks to be moving through in the afternoon on Friday, it may mean a bit of an advantage for the Thursday afternoon wave. There's about a 60% chance of rain on Friday afternoon. On the weekend, the front that arrived on Friday looks to stick around for a while and bring some decent rain and potential thunderstorms again on Saturday. Basically, from 9 a.m. on, there's a constant 60% or better chance of rain and thunderstorms for the remainder of the day. What we do know for sure is that the course will soften up for weekend play, and on the bright side, 
there shouldn't be too much wind along with the rain on Saturday. So let's cross our fingers that the forecast is worse than the actual weather on Saturday and that the guys can play golf because Sunday, while it appears better, is not exactly a perfect golfing day either. Sunday brings a 60% chance of showers early, then subsiding to 40% for the remainder of the day. We'll just have to wait and see how fast or slow this front moves and if it will impact the play on Sunday as well. Regardless of weather though, we should be in for some great golf with a stacked field. Pressure combined with championship golf usually does that and Muirfield delivers an exciting finish annually. Let's hope for more of the same this time around. As for who I think will succeed, check out my spreadsheet on the Teeing Off blog, but quickly, here are my top five. Hideki Matsuyama. Hideki has made nine of ten cuts this year. In his brief memorial history, he has made two of three cuts with a win and a fifth place showing. Hideki also ranks seventh in strokes gained tee to green and third in birdie or better percentage, something that will come in handy with not only four part fives, but also a lot of bogeys lurking, bounce back birdies, and all around solid play could propel Hideki to a good finish. Number four, Patrick Cantley. He's kind of the hot name this week, but I can't disagree. Patrick has made the cut in all 11 events he's played in this year. He ranks fourth in approaches from 175 to 200 yards, which all four par threes measure this week, and is seventh in good drive percentage. As mentioned earlier, the fairways may be wide, but if you miss one, you're screwed. Number three, Matt Kuchar. The other hot name this week, Kuch has made six straight cuts and finished 12th and 9th in his last two events on tour. Even more impressive is his memorial resume. He's seven for seven in his last seven attempts here at making the cut with a win, four top tens, and his worst finish of those seven is a 26th place, including a fourth place last year. Number two, Dustin Johnson. DJ has made seven cuts in a row with his last three finishes coming in at 13th, 12th, and second to go with his streak of wins right before that. At the Memorial, he has made seven of his last eight cuts with two top fives, five top 20s, and a third and 13th the last two seasons. Dustin also leads the tour in, well, a bunch of categories of stats, but most importantly this week, he's first in strokes gained tee to green. And my number one pick this week is John Rahm. He has made all 14 cuts this year with top five finishes two of the last three weeks, including a runner-up this past weekend. He has not played the Memorial before, but proved last week at Colonial that that shouldn't be an issue for him. John is third in strokes gained approach and second in both strokes gained tee to green and approaches from 175 to 200 yards. So giddy up. A couple of potential sleepers are Brendan Steele coming in with all 10 cuts made this season, a sixth in his last start on tour and a 20th place finish here at the Memorial last year. Brendan sits third in approaches from 175 to 200 yards and first on tour in scrambling. And another guy to look out for is Byung-Hun An. He has also made all his cuts this year, playing in 12 events. His last three starts have resulted in a 24th, a 5th, and an 8th place finish. And in his only Memorial Tournament appearance last year, he finished in 11th. Again, for a more in-depth look at the field and who has the best chances to emerge victorious, check out my vlog. I don't think I've ever been shocked by a mugshot quite the way I was by Taggers. I saved this part for last because it just... It kind of gets me fired up. So here's the story as we currently know it, and then I'll kind of get into my thoughts. Tiger Woods was asleep at the wheel in his 2015 black Mercedes-Benz when Jupiter police spotted him, stopped in the right lane of a road early Monday. Police records show that Tiger Woods was cited for driving under the influence and improper parking and faces arraignment in July for the former charge. According to an incident report, Tiger Woods' 2015 Mercedes had, quote, 
fresh damage to the vehicle. Both driver's side tires were flat along with minor damage to both respective rims. There was also minor damage to the front driver's side bumper and rear bumper and the passenger rear taillight appeared to be out. Police had to wake up Tiger who was buckled in the driver's seat, court records indicate. The car was running and the brake lights were on, the right blinker was flashing. Palm Beach County jail records indicated that Woods was taken into custody at 17 a.m. Monday and released at 10.50 a.m. on his own recognizance. He later issued a statement in which he explained that alcohol was, quote, not involved in the incident. I understand the severity of what I did and take full responsibility for my actions, Woods said. What happened was an unexpected reaction to prescribed medications. I didn't realize the mix of medication has, had affected me so strongly. He also apologized, quote, with all my heart to my family, friends, and the fans, saying, I expect more for myself too. I will do everything in my power to ensure this never happens again. Court records list six people as witnesses to the incident. Florida Department of Law Enforcement records indicate all are Jupiter police officers. Now, since this story broke the internet, not only Twitter, but the whole internet went nuts. TMZ posted an article about the incident that ended up being 100% false, almost every single word of it. Fellow tour pros like Hunter Mayhan tweeted things like, get this man some help. Golf analysts like Robert Lucevich painted a picture of a struggling woods hampered by alcoholism, pointing to a Met Gala picture of Tiger with Lindsey Vaughn from a few years ago as proof. Seriously? And then came the think pieces. Worst career suicide ever. When did Tiger's alcoholism start? Is this to blame for his infidelity? Was he drunk when he crashed the Escalade? What if this happened at 5 p.m.? Newsflash, it didn't. This went on and on and on for well over 24 hours. And then another police report came out, and it showed Tiger had zero, I repeat, zero alcohol in his system. He also cooperated fully with police. There was no smell or sign of alcohol. And although, yes, Tiger failed the field sobriety tests, he did manage to recite the national anthem backwards. That's some patriotic stuff right there. Seriously, though, he told them all the medications he was on, all stuff that matches with someone coming off back surgery and a history of multiple surgeries all over his body would have been taken, and that matched his symptoms. So Tiger's story, at least as far as we know it now, if you actually consider the details, is pretty darn true. He took pain meds, got behind the wheel, which he shouldn't have done, wasn't able to control himself, and pulled to the side of the road and fell asleep. Clearly, this isn't a good story, but the criticism and hatred he has taken this week, my God, this is the same man that is responsible for the insane money the golfers are making on tour now. The insane money the tour executives and TV companies and golf brands were making for years off this guy, and some of them continue to do so. And if he does, in the end, have an issue, whether it's alcohol or medication or depression, whatever it may be, shouldn't we be there to lend a helping hand to support the man that we all looked up to all sat around the couch in awe of, and all at one point wished we could be. In the last day or so, we've seen a few guys like Jack Nicholas come out in support of Tiger and wish him well. I suggest that those who wrote the scathing articles, the hate pieces, and the just disappeared Tiger stories, I suggest looking in the mirror and asking what would happen were your life under a microscope. The Twitter trolls, the sarcastic comments, whatever, those all come with the territory. But those who are paid to research and report on these things, I simply say, be better. All right, that is it for this week. Thank you for listening. Enjoy the memorial. Give me a follow on Twitter at RJ McCullough and let me know your thoughts. Once again, I'm RJ McCullough and I will talk to you again next week.